Scott, do you know that I used to be anti-vaccine? Is that true? It is true. And you know why? Because I did my, no, I, no, I used to do my research on Google. So no, researching things on Google and Facebook are not your way because when I did it, I delayed all of my first daughter's vaccines because I was terrified. And what changed? I got my doctor's degree and I learned how to science. Right. (laughs) It's a verb. You need to learn to science. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I've talked about the COVID vaccine and COVID denial before on this podcast, most obviously in episodes 48 and 45, and yep, I'm going to talk about it again today. And you might wonder why. The answer is that my heart is completely broken by the fact that Am Yisrael, which should be an or lagoyim, a light unto the nations, which should be at the forefront of caring about science and expert opinion, which should be loudly proclaiming to the world that pikuach nefesh, the saving of life, takes precedence over almost anything and everything. Am Yisrael is often not viewed like that at all. Because 20 months into the spread of the coronavirus, we still have large groups of openly Orthodox Jewish people who simply don't care, or who deny, or worst of all, try to convince other people to deny reality as well. When a religious person says that the current situation is like Auschwitz and is even worse than the Shoah, yes, I heard someone say that, we have a serious problem and we cannot keep our mouths shut. Now, this is not to take away from the many religious Jews, including Rosh Yeshiva and Hasidic Rebbe's and others, who are demanding that their communities vaccinate and be careful. And it's also not to say that many vaccine and COVID deniers don't honestly believe what they're saying and have honorable and good intentions. But Jewish thought emphasizes behavior, not unrealized motivations. The road to hell is indeed paved with good intentions. God might judge them favorably, but our job is to be honest. And people who convince others to avoid the vaccine are involved in a type of manslaughter. Dr. Blima Marcus is at the forefront, both in the field and on social media, of fighting against this propaganda. First, let me remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for The Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffee House. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. 
Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Dr. Blima Marcus is an oncology nurse practitioner, adjunct professor at Hunter College, and public health advocate. She has published and lectured widely on increasing vaccine confidence in providers and parents of children. She has consulted for the CDC and the New York City Department of Health during the measles outbreak in 2018-2019, and she's a trusted source for public health education. She is the founder of the MS Initiative, a nurse-led organization dedicated to providing communities with evidence-based health information and undoing harmful misinformation. Her advocacy work has been featured in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Dr. Blima Marcus, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Before we begin, can you give me a little bit of background about who you are, where you're recording from, what community you're a part of, and so forth? I don't know if I know who I am yet. <laughs> Isn't that a complex question? That is a complex question. I meant yeah, it more um, of, a, of a factual rather than a philosophical question. I know. So I grew up in Borough Park in a Hasidic community. Um, my mother wasn't from a Hasidic community. She was from a kind of little more modern Orthodox community in Washington Heights. Mm -hmm. So I kind of grew up with inflections from my father's more Hasidic beliefs and backgrounds and my mother's less Hasidic beliefs and backgrounds. I think the combination definitely formed a lot of who I am. Um, I very much love my community, very much. I, I think in general in the from community, there are people who fall through the cracks. You know, as, as, as from Judaism, nuclear families, stable families, they reap all the benefits of a tight communal interwoven community. And I was privileged to be within that, you know, close family, close relatives, neighbors, friends. And for all of those reasons, I saw so much of the beauty of a really close and interwoven, uh, you know, community lifestyle. And that's very important because as you'll notice, and as people who follow me on social media notice, I criticize a lot of things that go wrong in the community. But at the same time, I'm very much aware of how powerfully loving and how powerfully close-knit they are. So when people talk about vaccine hesitancy and saying, well, they don't care about their fellow Jews, that is completely false. It is a falsehood. And that's important. Actually, that puts you right in line with what this podcast is in its best moments, which is firmly within the Orthodox community without denying the problems that exist therein. So I think we're on the same right. page when it comes to that. Are you still part of that same Hasidic community? I still live within it. Um, our friends and neighbors are all very much Hasidic. My husband and I don't really lead the Hasidic lifestyle the way it traditionally looks, um, you know, which is a little more insular, you know, not exposing your family or children to secular books or secular movies. We don't really live like that. We send our children to more moderate schools, Beis Yaakov style schools, not the Hasidic sects. You know, so we kind of balance our lifestyle. Okay. You've become relatively well known on social media because you have been an outspoken advocate for vaccines for going against those who would deny that corona exists, deny the efficacy of vaccines and so on and so forth. So I'm going to ask you the obvious question, the opening obvious question. Are vaccines effective? They're, they're superbly effective. And, and, and just to be very um, honest, it also depends on the vaccine. 
So in terms of childhood vaccines and all vaccines that are out there, it does depend on the vaccine, but overall, they're they're all wildly effective. So let's speak about the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine that has recently come out and the Moderna one and the Johnson & Johnson. I don't mean to go through each one, but in general, the vaccines that are being presented to the public now in the United States and Israel, et cetera, what's your opinion about those vaccines? I think they're extraordinarily safe. Um, People are really worried about you know, how rapidly they were developed and produced and distributed. And there are great answers for all of those questions. They're valid questions, but there are equally valid, powerful answers that people really should try to internalize. Um, But they are very, very, very safe and effective. And I'm always very reassured whenever an issue is brought to light, because that means that the surveillance programs that are monitoring all this are working. Mm -hmm. So how do you know that they're effective? You say they're surveillance programs, but so many people out there are claiming Mm -hmm. that in in our community and outside of our communities are claiming that vaccines have unknown dangers or perhaps they claim known dangers, heart problems and so on and so forth. How do you know that they are effective? Are you talking about effectiveness or safety? Because those are the two vaccine questions. Okay, Okay, so both. So so, okay, let's talk about vaccine safety. And there's a lot I can say, so stop me if you need to interject. Mm-hmm. Um, we know they're safe because, first of all, they've been studied um, really, really, really closely. You know, this is the largest vaccination program in the history of vaccines. All eyes are on what is happening in the entire globe. So it would almost be foolish for an agency to allow an unsafe or questionable vaccine to be out there because all eyes are on it. And we would immediately see, especially with social media, we would immediately see if there were dangers in the vaccine. So first of all, you need to be exceptionally careful because this is global. You know, you're distributing this globally and everyone is going to be having their eyes on that. So to, to, to risk putting out an unsafe vaccine that would reduce belief in vaccine, that would just be foolish. But in terms of practical evidence of the safety, the studies have been done. And how are they done quickly? There are great answers. You know, first of all, there were unlimited amounts of volunteers. People volunteered for this because we're in the middle of a massive pandemic and crisis. So lots of volunteers, no red tape, undisturbed funds. All the things that usually slow down vaccine development were completely non-existent over here, not to mention um, all of the biggest scientists in the world had abandoned all their projects working together. So they were able to produce this vaccine in a short amount of time, recruit participants. And the biggest point of all is how infectious and common the vaccine was. You can see immediately that it worked. If you wanted to test the vaccine against the measles, you'd have two cohorts and you'd have to wait for the unvaccinated group to catch the measles. But it's so rare that you'd be waiting a couple of years for enough people to catch the measles, mm-hmm. right? But because COVID was happening so all, you know, all over the place and so infectious, immediately the unvaccinated cohort all got sick. So all of these reasons contributed to really quick development and understanding of how effective the vaccine was. Now, when you talk about safety, once they started rolling it out, now you call it, it it's kind of um, colloquially called phase four trials, which don't exist. You don't really do a phase four. It's post licensure surveillance. You're giving it to now to millions of people, and now you're going to wait for the outcomes to roll in. Because when you're doing your phase three trial, you're only enrolling a couple thousand people. You can't realistically enroll millions of people. Mm -hmm. So what you're going to find out in the phase three trials are the common side effects. And they found that out immediately. A lot of um, myalgia, aches and pains, you know, sometimes a low fever and chills. It's a very reactogenic vaccine, which means you feel it. So we knew that immediately out of the studies, but then we don't know what the rare side effects are because rare means one out of a million. You won't see that until you give it to a million people, right? So in the post-licensure surveillance, we're giving it to millions of people. Now the reports start trickling in. 
if you recall, the first few reports that came in that were worrying people were anaphylactic allergic reactions. Mm -hmm. That was actually very brief. There were only a handful. Everyone was absolutely fine. Um, it caught you know, the media's attention, but then it kind of died down because it wasn't a very big deal. Um, then a couple months later, or a couple weeks later, we heard that the Johnson vaccine had a risk of clots. Okay. Um, and you know what? The risk was high enough. One or two people died and out of 10 or 12 million shots. Just to put it into context, you know, we never want a death, but we're also talking about a risk of 0.000005. Mm -hmm. So just to put that into context. So the vaccine was actually halted for a week while they looked into that. So these emergences of, of stronger side effects that you don't really want to see, but are sometimes unavoidable, you know, when giving them to millions of people, you will see that certain people react. The fact that they're being monitored and watched and holding the vaccine while we investigate those, that for me is reassuring in understanding that there are millions of eyes tracking the safety of these vaccines as we give it in real time. Then how about long-term effects that they couldn't possibly know about yet? I know, for example, a lot of people are worried about fertility issues when it's given to young female children, and we can't possibly know what will happen in terms of fertility until they're six or seven years older than they are now. How can we possibly know what's going on with that? Well, we have 100 years of vaccinology to look back on, and vaccine side effects traditionally occur within the first six weeks. The likelihood that you'll get a vaccine in January and something will happen to you in uh, June, it, the, the likelihood of that being connected is so remote that it's never actually been found. In very few cases, has someone gotten a vaccine and months later developed an issue. When you talk about fertility, there's actually a name for the fertility rumor. It's called a hibernation rumor. It's a rumor that surfaces with almost every vaccine. Uh, and the anti-science and anti-vaccine folks capitalize on that. No one wants to affect their fertility. I mean, it's biological. We want to continue to create generations and people and pass on our genes. Causing fear in women about their fertility is the best way to you know, induce hesitancy. It's been brought up with the DTaP vaccine, which is your vaccine that prevents diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, uh, most recently against the HPV vaccine. You know, we've had the HPV vaccine for about 16 years now, and people are still very skittish about it. And there's always been rumors about fertility, you know, fertility issues. They've all been unfounded. And again, when it comes to the COVID vaccine, absolutely unfounded. There's no biological plausible mechanism for which it can hurt your fertility down the line. I do want to interject just to say the concern about fertility may partially stem from reports of irregular menstruation after the vaccines. There have been reports from many women enough that a lot of healthcare departments um, nationally, you know, the CDC and the healthcare system in Britain and, and in Israel are looking into whether there is a link between vaccination and temporarily irregular periods. I'm pretty sure there is a relation relationship between those. Um, it's easily explainable. The uterus is actually part of the immune system. So mm. temporarily expecting a little bit of a wonky effect from a very strongly reactive vaccine is not a ridiculous you know, connection and it's very likely. Um, and we need to be honest about these um, side effects because if hundreds of women are saying, hey, I've been regular my whole life and now I've been wonky for three months, you need to validate that. You can't deny people their experiences, especially when there's a likely contributing factor. But I, it's also important to realize that a temporarily irregular period does not mean fertility issues. They're very separated. Women can get irregular for hundreds of reasons. So we, call, we just need to be honest about all of these things that are going on. Now, Dr. Marcus, I'm very much on your side of this ledger because the vaccine hesitancy has been driving me crazy. It's something which I see in my neighborhood. I live in Ramat Beit Shemesh in Israel. 
There are many mm-hmm. people who obviously are pro-vaccines, but we also see some who are against vaccines, people who've been denying COVID all along. You're speaking mm-hmm. in the name of science. I want to understand from your perspective, before we get to specifically Jewish issues per se, where are the anti-vaxxers, the anti-COVID contingent? Where are they coming from? What are they reading? What are they believing that the obvious scientific benefits, both regarding efficacy and safety, are being ignored? They're reading misinformation. Um, and there's a, the, the anti-vaccine world is usually profitable, usually profitable, because when you prey off the fears of people, they'll buy into anything you have to sell. You know, um, there's actually a Duke University, which is a very well respected medical institution in North Carolina, is actually offering autism treatments for $15,000 for a one time stem cell infusion. Now, they did a phase two trial to see if it works. And you can actually see that it says that there was no effect in behavioral or social you know, um, issues in the children with autism, which we know is very prevalent in that disorder. They found no improvement. And yet they're offering it for $15,000 in infusion. And I have no doubt that there are people who will try it because desperate parents will turn to desperate solutions. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Dr. Wakefield did, he's not a doctor anymore, Mr. Wakefield, he was the physician back in 1998 who did a terribly poor study in which he was also compensated 500,000 British pounds by lawyers who wanted to sue Merck. It's, it's very convoluted over here, but a bunch of lawyers representing women whose children had autism wanted to sue Merck for their MMR vaccine. They hired then Dr. Wakefield for $500,000 to find a connection, which breaches every ethical rule in the book. Um, In his study, he actually didn't find a relationship. He actually stated there's a strong genetic component to autism, which is true. Um, And he says, our study did not find the connection we sought. So he actually didn't find that connection. But in his press conferences, he talked about the possibility. It's that leap of logic. And he was, why are so many children getting autistic or being diagnosed these days? And we're giving so many vaccines. And he, you know, the assumption is that one begets the other. And the worst thing that he did was give people who don't have answers to their children's autism a false answer. Hmm. And that is kind of where the whole anti-vaccine movement comes. We don't know how COVID began. So people latch onto the lab leak theory. We don't know if there's a treatment yet. So they latch onto any treatment that people are proponing, whether it's ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, which have all been, which have all been disputed and are not really safe uh, the way people are taking it. So people want answers. They want to understand things that fit into their own unique framework. And most of all, we, I think, I don't know if you've read uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs's most recent book, uh, Morality, where he talks about how society has gone from one that was a little bit more or much more communal and interwoven and an understanding of personal responsibility and social responsibility to one that now no longer really has those beliefs. So any recommended uh, step that people make to you in terms of public health is getting hit back. You know, I don't want to do that for you. It's not my responsibility. I'll protect myself the way I want to with a lack of interest or understanding and that it affects other people too. But at the same time, Dr. Marcus, what's so strange about this And I realize I'm asking you about human psychology, which isn't necessarily your field, but at the same time, you've talked about this a lot on social media. You're talking about people who are scared looking for solutions. Well, a vaccine is the obvious solution, and yet those same people are now completely rejecting the obvious solution. How do you explain that? So it's the misinformation campaign, which has never been so huge. And um, it's funny because in 2019, I was battling the measles outbreak that was very um, large in New York City. And that's when I got involved in vaccine education, when I realized that there were 
organizations within the from myth that were uh, proponents of anti-vaccine information. And I realized that like they're living among us, they're fostering these falsehoods. And that's when I got involved. And early during COVID, um, someone asked me, do you feel like you're back in 2019 with the measles? And I said, no, the measles was much more confusing because we it was much more frustrating because we were battling misinformation. Now we're just battling the virus. This was within the first two months of the virus. We hadn't yet hit that huge misinformation campaign that made everyone question whether COVID exists, whether it's real, whether it's bad, whether it's the flu. And it was funny to hear myself say that because, I mean, I, I didn't foresee that COVID would join the ranks of myths. I thought it was so real, the effects so obvious that you can't deny what a dangerous virus that is. You can't deny that if and when a vaccine comes along, of course you'll get it because that's the only right thing to do. No one saw this kind of anti-vaccinism coming. And I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Peter Hotez. He's a Jewish um, epidemiologist. He actually spoke on Shabbos Shuva about um, anti-vaccine you know, uh, beliefs at his uh, shul in Texas. He's America's leading epidemiologist, I have mm -hmm. to say. And he just tweeted this morning that the only thing holding science back now is not lack of funds, it's not lack of scientists, it's anti-scientists. And that's the answer. You know, people who develop contrarian views and are given platforms to share them and develop um, unlikely theories that there are toxins in your vaccine and spike proteins that accumulate in your organs, any kind of ridiculous theory, it just grabs hold in people's minds. So you are not of the opinion that doing a few hours of research on Google and YouTube is an appropriate substitute for medical school. Is that a fair statement? Um, Scott, do you know that I used to be anti-vaccine? Is that true? It is true. And You're you know why? Because me. I did my, no, I, no, I used to do my research on Google. So no, researching things on Google and Facebook are not your way because when I did it, I delayed all of my first daughter's vaccines because I was terrified. And what changed? I got my doctorate degree and I learned how to science. Right. <laughs> it's a okay. verb. You need to learn to science. You need to learn to science. Okay, I like that. Yeah. A moment ago, you mentioned the measles vaccine and the problems in the ultra-Orthodox community. So let's move into that discussion a little yeah. bit about how it sure. is in the firm world in your experience. So what's your general feeling in terms of vaccine hesitancy and how prevalent it is in the communities that you serve in the Orthodox community? I, I can't give you numbers because it's hard to know, but it's, it's significant enough that we had thousands of children with the measles two years ago. You know, the CDC records it as 1,200 cases, but that's only the documented cases. And most women in the Hasidic and, uh, you know, Litvish communities in Lakewood that had children with the measles, they didn't report them. You know, it's a very obvious diagnosis. You developed that rash, the sniffles, the eye, the breathing trouble. Um, they didn't want the health department down their backs. So there were not 1,200 cases. There were thousands more, thousands more. Um, so that means that we have a problem. That means that anti vaccinism and, uh, you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy is a significant problem. And again, if these weren't for infectious diseases, it wouldn't be a big problem. You know, if it was just for diseases that weren't communicable, it wouldn't matter. But because it's, it's enough people that it causes disease everywhere. Um, so it's, it's, it's a problem. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And we live so connected, so tight knit in such urban settings. You know, some people try to use that as an explanation for why COVID spread so rapidly in the from community or why the measles spread. Well, well, we live together. We go to shul together. We live in, you know, urban settlements. And my answer is, well, then you need to be that much more careful. Mm -hmm. You know, um, sure, we live in conditions that might make it more challenging to, com to, to combat infectious disease if there's an outbreak. But you can't be complacent about that and say, well, too bad. We live close together. You need to say, well, we live close together. Therefore, we should wear our masks. 
Therefore, we have to be vaccinated. In which case, why is it that the Orthodox community was so, or I shouldn't say the Orthodox community, that's unfair, segments within the Orthodox community were so against some of these obvious precautions? I mean, historically, at least as I understand it, Orthodox Jews were very careful, much more so than the general public, about health. The Briskers, for example, very famously, you know, it's Pikuach Nefesh is almost the ultimate value in some ways. How did it happen that parts of the Haredi and Hasidic communities have simply ignored public health directives, whether it's regarding masks and even more so when it comes to vaccines, because they're not even on social media. Like, where are they even getting the right. disinformation? It's, it's complex. Uh, the answer is, is that whatever happens in the mainstream community trickles down to the Orthodox community. So when people say, why are the Orthodox vaccine hesitant? I say for the main, for the reasons that all the mainstream people are vaccine hesitant. Okay. They have the same fears and the same concerns. How does that misinformation get to the Orthodox community? First of all, there is a very active anti-vax movement within the from community. And somehow they're very well funded. There's a lot of suspicion, although this isn't the path that I really focus on, it doesn't matter to me, but there's a lot of suspicion and some evidence that the larger national anti-vaccine movement funds the smaller ones to keep the movement alive. So they've got their cronies in um, Minnesota where the Somali people live and they are automatically mistrustful. They've got that in Amish County. They've got that in you know pockets of Orthodox Judaism. So, for example, today, Del Victory, who is one of the top three anti-vaxxers in the international world, is in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He's at a meeting at an anti-vaccine today today, in Williamsburg today. So that's it. That's your answer. You know, there are these anti-vax factions within orthodoxy that bring in the people to contribute to the misinformation during the measles outbreak when you would think that people would take a step back from their misinformation. They actually had a huge event in Muncie, which has a huge Hasidic population, which brought Del Bigtree, um, Andrew Wakefield by hookup, by video hookup, um, and several other huge names in anti-vaccine rhetoric. They brought them straight to the Hasidim. So they're bringing this information to them. Now, how does it spread? First of all, word of mouth, right? The from community, people have large families, many siblings, many cousins, um, you know, are very often communal and spending time together and people talk, you know, did you know that he got that vaccine and he died the next day? You don't verify it. You have no way of knowing who it is. Um, and then that person shares it further. It's really very simple. And then regarding the internet claim, I don't know how true that is these days. These days, more people than ever, even in the Hasidic community, are on the internet in some form, whether it's for business needs or just using it to ease their lives, to do their shopping, get their news. So it happens. And then WhatsApp. WhatsApp is the Hasidic mechanism of communication for so many people, probably the majority. And you know how misinformation is shared on WhatsApp. It doesn't take a moment to um, share things to thousands of people in your phone. So people get this information and either don't have the skills or the time to verify whether it's true. Do you have an example of this? Well, my, my sister is in several WhatsApp groups, you know, for uh, people in her in her children's classes and in her own social circles. And she'll constantly send me the things that she gets and say, I know there's an answer. What is it? And there is an answer. And I can look at the date of a screenshot and say, this date was from four years ago. It's false. Or I can look it up and say, it's immediately debunked if you Google it. Or I'll do a little bit more of a deep dive and say, that's actually not even possible with this vaccine. There's no octopus in the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, and it keeps her you know, reassured, but she also then uses that to respond, which I'm very proud of her for that. Because these days, if you respond to anti-science, you get battered. You get battered if you um, try to step into that conversation. And I know that very well. Yeah, certainly the idea of a little knowledge is a dangerous thing applies to the anti-vaxxers who will come at you with their quote-unquote facts, constantly, 
based on their mild research, which still may be more than I have done because I'm relying on actual scientists like you to tell me the truth rather than trying to do my own research. And therefore they say, oh, you're a fool. See, here's the thing. You're not doing your own research. You're relying on the scientists. They're not doing their own research either. They're relying on the anti-vaccine folks. So we're all reading articles but we're choosing to read articles that are created by different people. They're choosing to read things, choosing to read things on Rumble. I don't even know what Rumble is. All I know is that it's a platform where all of the vaccine literature exists. And that's the website that people send me to debunk things. And I go, I don't even know what platform this is. And I've really just started saying, if it's on Rumble, it's false. I just can't deal with that. If, if, if it's something that isn't published on the mainstream media, you can't find it anywhere legit, don't waste my time with it. But that's what people are choosing to read. I wouldn't even actually respect their um, statement that they're doing their own research. They're simply reading the wrong information the way you're reading the right information. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, their own research. I mean, by their own definition of what research is, part of the problem, definition of course, of research. Correct. is, is Correct. they don't know how to do medical research. That's the, the irony of the whole thing. No, no, they don't. And in, in, the, in the occasional time that they can find an evidence-based study that they feel supports them, then they'll use that. Um, so if there's a study that says antibodies are waning right? Which is normal. Antibodies wane and then your body kind of, your immunity is replaced by long-term immunity and not just the antibodies. So that's normal. But they'll use that and say, see, the, me- the, the evidence shows this. So they'll, they'll believe the evidence when they choose to, um, and then they'll abandon it when it doesn't suit the narrative. And also certainly exaggerate what that evidence means, as you just said. Absolutely. They'll reinterpret it. Reinterpretation is huge, unfortunately. Let's get back into the ultra-Orthodox communities. Do you think that the concept of Das Torah, which in its most extreme and frankly negative sense, means that rabbis are oracles who can tell you everything about everything, even if they don't have any particular specialized knowledge in that area. Do you think that this ideology, the extreme ideology of Das Torah, has been a problem here? Or is it more that people are ignoring Das Torah when Das Torah is saying what is proper, get the vaccine, and doing whatever they want? I do know there are certainly some rabbis who have been phenomenal publicly getting vaccines, publicly telling everyone to wear masks. There have also been some rabbis who are in leadership positions who have done the opposite, telling people, well, I heard so and so and so whatever, so don't get the vaccine. I think it's not right at this time. They're not trying to be bad, but ultimately they're killing people. Yes. This is a very complex question. Um, And I think it could be broken down into a couple things. First of all, you have people misrepresenting themselves as rabbis or people that are not actually big rabbis and big communities that have legit, you know, weight. They're not actually the rabbis that people think, but they'll sign an edict that says something. And people say, oh my God, look what this rabbi says. And then if you look into it, it turns out he's some small town, no one who doesn't really have the gravitas, you know, to, to really, that, that, that people really take on for that. So you have people that are kind of impersonating rabbis or adding the word rabbi before their name. The anti-vaccine world, unfortunately, terribly dishonest, absolutely dishonest. This event that I mentioned to you that's in Williamsburg today, mm-hmm. they're having a community activist there Um, He's a young gentleman who works in anti-racism circles, which is great, but he's also very active in anti-vaccine circles. They framed him as an obstetrician and MD. Okay. And is he? says that on the flyer. No, of course not. Absolutely not. No, no. Anyone can look it up. It's false. It's absolutely false. And this kind of behavior is not new. So what I'm saying is, is that if an edict is going around an anti-vaccine circle saying these rabbis oppose the vaccine, um, I actually have evidence that one of these lists that had like 30 names, half the names didn't exist. The other half were not rabbis and a couple left were just kind of nobodies that have smicha, but aren't really anyone that you should be following. So the one problem is rabbis using their titles and that are not really rabbis. The second issue is that I, I think um, 
It does bother me when rabbis step into medical issues without the appropriate background. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a problem. It's a problem because then they carry the weight of the ramifications on their shoulders. And I think the the real problem with that is that there are some leadership rabbis. I know we've discussed that many are false rabbis or not real rabbis, but there are some, and without naming names, they carry huge weight in the from community and they are anti-vaccine and have been. So it's actually not new. The bigger problem is that now we're in the middle of a pandemic. So all of their anti-vaccine beliefs from before are coming to the forefront now. And instead of using their platform to endorse vaccination, especially in communities that were hit so hard, they're fostering misinformation or just remaining hesitant, which fosters hesitancy. So it's it, it's something that's very, very, very upsetting. And I and I've called out organizations before that have this going on on their, you know, in their boards. I understand the predicament they're in. You know what they say, institutions are evil, but people are good. Once you're in an institution, you you can't really change things easily. And it's frustrating. I don't want to speak about the Satmar community specifically because I don't know anything about it. I'm just mentioning it as an example because you mentioned yeah. Williamsburg. And yeah. at least in theory, Hasidim of that kind listen to their Rebbe. And even if the no. Rebbe... Oh, so that's that's what I want to ask you. Because at least in principle, yeah. should the Rebbe get up and say... I'm talking about in theoretical Hasidut, right? Hasidus. If the Rebbe yeah. gets up yeah. and says, everyone needs to get a vaccine. Forget not advocating anti-vax rhetoric, but just saying, everyone go get the vaccine the way your doctors say then that entire conference today that's taking place in Williamsburg should be shut down. No one should show up. Now, you're saying that's not true. Well, it depends on the Hasidus. For example, I believe the Gera Rebbe and the Vizhnitz Rebbe in Israel ordered their disciples to get vaccinated, and they lined up. They turned their base measures into a vaccine center. Um, so there are some that are rigidly like that. Um, Bells is like that. And I remember during the measles outbreak, uh, there's a huge Bells community in Lakewood. And that was one of my first visits where I started doing vaccine education. So there's a huge anti-vaccine group there in Lakewood. Um, A few months into the outbreak, an edict came out of Israel from the Bells of Rebbe that said, you must give your children the MMR. The women lost it. They were terrified because they knew they had to. And a lot of women did. I mean, the fears, the misinformation, I, I, I almost respect it. And it's almost kind of terrifying too. The Rebbe said it, they're doing it. Many other women were like, no, I want to see it. Did the Dayan say it? Did they write it under duress? I don't believe it because they knew they had to comply. But that does not exist across all sects at all. If the Bubba Rebbe and my family has, is Bubba, the Bubba Rebbe stood up and told you to get vaccinated, some will, some won't. Absolutely not. Mm, interesting. Um, same with Satmar. Yeah, same with Satmar. Um, and Williamsburg, by the way, is not only Satmar. So you've got um, other Hasidic sects there. Um, but it doesn't really work that way. And the Hasidic Rebbe's are actually pretty pro-vaccine in many ways, but they're not outspoken about it. That's the thing. Um, just as a, as a side thing, which was so wonderful, in 2019, during the measles outbreak, I don't know if you're familiar with Der Blatt, the really large Yiddish newspaper. In, yeah, um, in I, I don't read Yiddish, but I know of it, yes. Yeah, so um, I can read it. This is just slow for me. I haven't read it in many, many years. So My son they can read it. Published... Oh, nice. <laughs> so um, they published a English editorial for the first time in their history that called it senseless, Torahless, and something else, and called anti-vaxxers murderers, mm. and endorsed vaccination in the un. I mean, I can't, I can't even explain, I mean, from the title itself, it was just exceptionally strongly worded. And I was really glad to see that, um, that they were taking a stance because Williamsburg was one of the two hotspots during the measles outbreak. So it, it, when, when, you're, when you're looking at whether a Rebbe can speak up and whether, uh, whether a Hasidic Rebbe can speak up and whether it will be effective, it will de- depend on the sect. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it will depend on the person. There are people who will simply not listen if, if, they, if they feel like they just can't bear it. I think the larger problem is that they just don't talk about it. These are a It's just not a, it's not a topic. It's just not a topic. You know, I don't think it's ever been really mentioned. Well, I don't think that abdication of responsibility is a good excuse. And I assume you don't either. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think they should. Um, they, 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 no questions asked. They need to, you know, it's interesting. The Baba Varebi had a conversation which was considered very out of character a couple, uh, two, three years ago um, at a Malava Malka for women. He came and he spoke and he spoke about the need to get their mammograms. And it was, the women were blown because first of all, he's never spoken on health issues before and he never spoke about women's health before. And it was just very, very, very out of character and unusual. And he told, he told someone else, and this comes through the grapevine, that he's tired of seeing men come to him crying about their wives having breast cancer and dying. So he got up and he spoke about that. And I was delighted. I was like, this is great. That's what a rabbi should do. Yeah. You know, it's not just your spiritual leadership. You need to guide them in other areas where your word will matter. Um, but I am sorry to say that that hasn't happened for other health, health issues. But I was happy about that. Yeah, I hear that. Have you seen, as a medical practitioner, have you seen deathbed regret by some people who were anti-vax, who were COVID disbelievers, people who, you know, whether it's themselves or family members are, are dying? They come back and they say, wow, I was really wrong about this and we were all mistaken. Um, I haven't because I haven't been at the bedside for the last year. I've been in outpatient chemotherapy and my chemo patients have been vaccinated up the wazoo from the straight up. Like they are smart people. They know their bodies. They understand immunity. They don't have this arrogance that I'll be fine and you'll be fine. They are humbled by their illness mm-hmm. and they have been vaccinated. Um, I've done a, partially because of themselves, partially because of the work I've done with them. So I did not have that experience. I want to ask you about engaging with anti-vaccinators, with people who are COVID deniers. Is it worth engaging with them? Is it worth talking to them? Or is it simply a fool's errand? We're better off talking to people who actually are inclined to listen. Is it even a valuable enterprise whatsoever or just a waste of time? Good question. Um, First of all, my target audience is never the anti-vaccine. It's the vaccine hesitant because they're the ones who are very reachable. You know, they're getting misinformation. They need to hear information from the other side as well. So, you know, I give it my best shot. That being said, when it comes to social media or even a webinar, you don't know who's logged on. You don't know who's watching the thread on Twitter or Facebook. So it's an incredible opportunity to speak up and you're not wasting your time. You're speaking up, you're denying a falsehood that someone might post. You're sharing a rebuttal. You're saying, actually, that's false. Read this article or see this you know, piece of information, because you don't know how many lurkers there are. So it's not a waste of time. But that being said, it's very draining, especially when people are so vitriolic, and usually uh, resort to just name calling and, you know, criticizing you. Um, and this happened to me with an Orthodox woman from Israel who posted a piece of information, and I responded, and she was vitriolic back. Um, she used very foul language. Um, she said, well, clearly, you know, although you're posing yourself as a community activist in this thing, you clearly are only here for, I don't remember what it was, but it just descended very rapidly into her name calling when I called her out on a piece of misinformation. And you know what? It's, it's very dirty work. And I'll tell you why. Educating on vaccines is clean work. You're just simply posting facts. Hey, read this. This is important. Hey, read this. It shows how vaccines work. Read this. It shows that it's safe. It's relatively safe. But if you go the next step and debunk the people who are spreading the lies or debunk the lies they're saying or call out people for lying. That's when it gets dirtier. It's a very crucial part of the work though, because you have to show them to be unreliable. 
right? If someone says, oh, two thirds of people who are vaccinated are gonna die this year. Well, we're almost a year into it and we haven't lost two thirds of the vaccinated people. Mm -hmm. So you need to debunk those folks. You need to reduce their credibility. And if they've been lying, if they're um, pulling the wool over people's eyes, if they're sharing misinformation, you need to show that they're not reliable, you shouldn't be following them. But that's the dirty work and people don't like that. Part of the problem with this conspiracy theory, probably like all conspiracy theories, is that it's like anti-Semitism, which is probably the biggest conspiracy theory of all, which is that it yeah. mutates to fit what people believe at that moment. The fact that yeah. 100 years ago, anti-Semitism was very different from what it is now doesn't change mm -hmm. anyone's mind. They simply mm -hmm. move along with the times in the same way. A year ago, they said, well, everyone's going to die. Now that everyone hasn't died, there's another problem. That's how it works. Oh, it exactly. Seems. It's whack-a-mole. It's whack-a-mole. It's moving the goalpost. You know, once the vaccine was approved a few weeks ago, someone wrote on Facebook, which was great, and says, um, that loud sound you hear, that's a million anti-vaxxers moving their goalposts together. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, people who really want to hold on to their beliefs will do so, even if you're able to show them that what they prior believed was a lie, or even if what they believed before is no longer true. You know, no one's talking about hydroxychloroquine anymore, but now they're talking about ivermectin, you know? So it, it's, there's always going to be something for them to hang their hat on. They just don't want to, or are unable to process the fact that they may have been backing the wrong horse. Some of the rhetoric that gets thrown around and so much misinformation that gets thrown around can be really terrifying when people die of natural causes and yet the anti-vaccine contingent starts ascribing it to vaccine results, to a side effect of a vaccine, or when those same people will say, I've spoken to Holocaust survivors and this is so much worse. And yes, I've heard that. Oh my God. We know that we're in a potentially very bad place. So Dr. Marcus, before we close, I want to ask you, in your current role, apart from being obviously someone who's working in the medical field, you've also become an online fighter for truth. Was that a role that you sought out or is it a role that just happened that you find yourself surprised to assume? In retrospect, I'm not surprised because I, I don't like liars and I don't like people being taken advantage of. So that I'm speaking up doesn't really surprise me. I think I'm just surprised by how, how large my role has grown um, it, you know, when I stepped into the anti-vaccine world during the measles outbreak, it was, I didn't think, well, we never saw a pandemic on the horizon, um, you know, but now we call measles the pregame, mm -hmm. you know, right? Like that just prepared us. Spring training. Um, yes, exactly. Um, so I, I, I guess yes and no. I kind of, I'm not surprised that I keep speaking up and I'm unable to stop, for lack of a better term, but um, I'm also kind of surprised by my reach. I, I, I I know, I know I'm all over social media, but um, I'm always surprised by like who gets back to me with what I've said and all that. Um, but I hope there's some good in that. I hope it's also reaching people who maybe are hearing things that are helping them make decisions. Well, please continue. And uh, if people want to follow you on social media, where are you found? So I'm on uh, Facebook under my name, Blimey Marcus, B-L-I-M-I-M-A-R-C-O-S. And under Twitter on the same thing, it's just reverse. It's Marcus Blimey, B-L-I-M-I. Okay, well, Dr. Blima Marcus, thank you very much for joining me today. This has been very important, and I appreciate your coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. 
please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.